these words from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is only one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Returning our thoughts to God's message of last week, you and I must with passionate commitment always keep love at the forefront of all that we are, all that we think and all that we do. And why would that be? It's because love is the first precept of who God is. And likewise, love is the first precept of all that he desires from you and me. Those words again as they were given so plainly to us by the Lord Jesus. They're in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. May I read? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the laws and all of the prophets. Love. Now this love that he's speaking about here, and and I know that this has been said so many times in your hearing, but I, I must say it again. This love that's being spoken about here, both in these verses here in Matthew 22, and also in our scripture text for today, this love that's spoken about here is not the manner of love that the world knows and that the world speaks about. Not at all. This love is a very different kind of love that God is calling us to. Both in our love for Him and in our love for those around us in the body of Christ. It's a very different kind of love and it actually is even a very different word altogether that's being used. This word for love is agape. And while it still has most all of the other forms of love within its meaning, it has one all-important addition to it. It has this mysterious presence of God's Holy Spirit living and working within it. And this special agape love towards our neighbors was accentuated even more later on, more passionately, when Jesus declared that you and I are to go on past loving our neighbor as ourselves, and own into this intense love of loving each other as he has loved us. Let me read that for you. This is in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, love in all of its forms, 
when shown and given in its proper context, is very, very good. Whether that love be brotherly affection that we would have for one another, or the familial or family kind of love that we have for members of our family, or this emotional and physical love that we share with with our spouses. Uh, Each of these forms of love is good. And it is a gift from God. And then, as God's Holy Spirit covers over these forms of love with His agape presence, love becomes all that He intends for it to be. Blessing us. Blessing us beyond measure. Now I must confess, as I have studied this word agape, and I've studied it on several occasions, there's a mystery within it, within its meaning, that I may never fully comprehend, leaving me to continue to ponder it over and over again. But though I do not clearly know its meaning, I do know that I want it. I want it in me, for God and for my family and for all of you and all of the people in the body of Christ. Because this kind of love is the only thing in existence that's able to cover over all those multitudes of sins and is able to bind us together as we read here in this unity that we so desperately need in this life. This kind of love is filled to the fullest with patience and kindness and gentleness and tenderness and comfort and love. It never seeks to benefit itself. It never seeks to benefit itself. Only to benefit others. And it never fails. It never fails. And best of all, God does not leave the ministry of this love within your and my own hands. Because you and I are not able to give it. Thanks be to God, He keeps this special love firmly within His own hands. Through the ministry of His blessed Holy Spirit as He abides within us. The love that I show for my dear wife and I show to her is being ministered by the Holy Spirit through me. I have no ability to love her that way on my own. Now these thoughts bring us back to the point that we were studying in our text last week and now again this week. Because try as we may, with all of our heart, we really can never, through our own strength, obey the second part of this great commandment of God. To love others as ourselves, or to love others as Christ loves them, and to be bound together with them in unity. Do you understand what that might mean? What that might imply? When we are bound together in unity... We are so close and so tied together that things happen. Difficulties begin to take place. And that is whether it be in the family, whether it be in the church, 
on out into our neighborhoods. Us being able to love in the way that God is commanding us to here is an impossibility at best. Speaking from personal experience, my own struggle to love others, especially with the depth that Christ loves them, is similar in my mind to this battle that the Apostle Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 7, in his battle against sin. That battle that rages between our flesh and our spirit. He went on to say later on in in chapter 7, he said, "There's there's a war going on within me between my flesh and my spirit. Romans 7.15, he says, I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want, I do. And I do the very thing that I hate. I do not do the things that I want to do. I do the very things that I hate. That battle is real. It's real in you and me just as really as it was in the Apostle Paul. And especially as we would attempt to, to show forth this love that God has put within us. And especially when the recipients of our love are not very lovable. Now our spirit does know what it's to do. And so we are without excuse because God's Holy Spirit, as He lives within us, is ministering to our spirit. We're told that in Romans chapter 8. His spirit is always ministering to our spirit, telling us what to do. But listen, our flesh, my claim to my right to myself, is ever and always pressing the fight, demanding what's in it for me. Now we may not use those words, but that's what's taking place. Self is so very needful and so very demanding that when the Spirit desires then to share something that belongs to self, self immediately begins to make life miserable within us. It truly is a battle. So then, this business of loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving others as Christ loves them and the unity of the Spirit that God is speaking about here, again, it is at best impossible. And a forewarning of that impossibility is just clearly given here through uh, these words. Now it is implicit, but it's clearly given here in today's text. I say implicit because he doesn't say it outright. That we're going to need all the patience that we can muster, all the kindness and gentleness and, and, and those kinds of things to carry out this love. But he clearly does say it. Let me read it again. This is uh, verse 2. With all humility, he just simply begins, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's here giving us how you and I are to conduct ourselves as we interact in our family, as we relate with those within this church and with other believers everywhere. And especially 
as we would relate with them in a group. Because within each group, there are all these differing personalities. Some are passive, and some are very assertive. Now for myself, having this personality that was born within me, I'm most often out front and and assertive. And let me say to you, that does not always set well with some of the other people in the groups. And here God is gently warning me and the others about how we should conduct ourselves. And note here with these words again that God words it in the way that it ought to be worded. He uses a very positive way of expressing it. He says simply with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, no matter what kind of personality that you're encountering, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager, not just acquiescing to, but eager to maintain a unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Wanting that unity. Not wanting your own way, but wanting a unity. Now we also have to understand that while it is implicit, it is also a command. Because you'll recall, God said, I give you commandments. The first is to love me. The second, I command you to love one another. It's not as if you and I have a choice. He simply is saying it in a very positive and loving way to us. Now how can God command you and me to do something that is simply impossible for us to do? To love those unlovable people when they are unlovable at their worst. And he has placed them all in amongst our circumstances in our day. How can he command us to do that when we can't do it? He can do that because he intends also to give you and me the enabling strength and the power and the wisdom to carry it out. We just have to be willing to listen to his still small voice. Now there was evidence that there were some problems taking place in the Ephesian church. And the Bible commentators tell us that these divisions were erupting in their group. But may I say that the bigger concern of God in giving us these words is that he knew all down through the ages that similar problems to these, divisions such as these, would always be taking place in every venue of life, wherever you bring more than one person together where you bring two or more together, every venue of life, whether it be in our homes, with our wives, our children, or whether it be the church and the church groups. Now why? It is simply a given that we're going to have these difficulties taking place. We're going to have these divisions erupting. And why would that be so? It is because that is what the world, the flesh, and the devil does. Those are our three enemies according to Scripture. The world and its ways, the flesh, our own flesh, and the devil. 
The world has the power to capture our imagination and make us to desire its ways, its ideas, its philosophies. And we don't even know we're going there. We just know we like thus and so. And so we adopt it or we follow along after it. And then there's also our flesh, that old self within us. Yes, it died back when we received Christ. But though it be dead, it still really does want to resurrect itself and reassert its ownership over us. Read about that in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then, to add an even greater burden on top of the world and the flesh, the devil is always, he is an ever-constant predator. Scripture says he travels to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And we're right in his path. says also in another place in Scripture that he is committed to doing three things. He came to steal, to kill, and to destroy us. And may I say, he is very adept at his trade. Now with that being said, what is Satan's real purpose in all his vile and destructive efforts towards those of us who have Christ as our Savior and Lord, and especially to us as a group, as a body of Christ. Oswald Chambers gave us this thought. He said that he believed that Satan's real attacks is not necessarily, they're not necessarily directed at you and me personally, but rather it is his earnest desire to defeat Christ in us. We are simply, as the common expression used today, we are often simply the collateral damage. Satan really does want to defeat Christ in us. And no, he cannot ever defeat Christ. But it seems that he does not know that. He has never given up on his original dream of being God. Like God, at least. Those words in... Isaiah 14, may I read them for you? Verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That was Satan's dream. That was his vision for his future. But it was an impossible one. Why was it impossible? First, because there really is only one God. And there is no other. And there can never be any other. But most of all, to be God, you must have all the attributes of God. And that means not just having omnipotent power and omniscient knowledge and wisdom and omnipresent, being able to be everywhere at one time, which Satan does not have any of those. But to be God, listen, to be God, you must also be inherently good. 
You must be inherently good. One so selfish and so self-centered as Satan could never be God. Because the greed and the arrogance and the lust for power would destroy not only his kingdom, it would also destroy his very being. He would self-destruct just as you can see him doing even now. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Satan still lusts to be God. And he has dedicated every moment of his existence and every resource at his disposal, all of those hordes of demonic spirits that get involved in your and my life every day. He devotes all of them to the accomplishment of this impossible dream that he has. And then Jesus being God and being this expressed image and exact representation of who God is that we read about in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is God and he is the exact representation so he becomes Satan's incessant focus. And then on top of that, as his spirit lives within each of us who have received him, we then become the recipient of all of Satan's attacks. And so in some foolish way, it actually makes a little bit of sense. If Satan can defeat you and me, turn us away from Christ and away from his truth, then in some small way, it satisfies Satan that he has defeated Christ. But again, in actuality, Satan can never defeat Christ. But is that not the way of all these ne'er-do-wells, these losers? They keep trying to do the same foolish things over and over again, hoping to succeed, only to fail every time. And they always do. But folks, listen. Like all fools, Satan will never give up. He will ever and always be at work trying to defeat Christ in you and in me. And because that battle is taking place within your and my soul and within the souls of every person within the body of believers, God is calling each of us with these words here to have the right response. He says to us, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here God is clearly telling you and me that we have a defined role that you and I must dedicate ourselves to. This Christianity does not just happen to you and me. You and I have to go out and participate in it. And that's what he's talking about here. And he says, beginning with humility, because you must have that as your foundation. You and I are to go on out in, a, in and about our relationships within this body of Christ with this humility as our foundation with all gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now again, this kind of giving and loving and gracious behavior is foreign to our natural personalities. 
You and I are by nature selfish and self-seeking. And that's why humility must always come first. He says it for us very well in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or in humility, but in humility count others more important, count others more important, more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think of a verse that I uh, say for concerning my wife. It's, it's some of my common verses. It says, uh, in the same way, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat her with respect as the weaker partner and as heir with you in the gracious gift of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Everything that I do, I have to consider her interests first. That's what these verses are saying to us here. And that's what's to take place in whatever group that we're in, whether it be in the family or whether it be in the whole body of Christ. God calls us to do that very thing, to be considerate of others, to live in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. There can be, listen, there can be no self-centered interests if we ever hope to have a unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit assumes that each of the other people within the body really does want the very same thing that God wants. And that we want. We're in this thing together with God. Now while yes, they may go about what they do differently. A person with a humble heart will always desire the best for the others. And we're told in other scriptures that such things as a soft answer turneth away wrath. What a much better way of speaking to those, whether it be your wife or others within the church. A soft answer turneth away wrath. And he also says in Galatians 6 that we need to restore errant brothers with a spirit of gentleness. Listen. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I have found that I so often use long words. Words I wish I could take back. Strong expressions when I should have been far more gentle and forgiving in my tone. The unity in the Spirit requires a deep surrender to Christ and an intentional effort on our part to love others. And we must be very intentional about it. The Apostle Paul explained to us in some simple words in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he equated this relationship in the body of Christ to members of our human body. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Folks, these words are so very important to each of us as we live each day in amongst other believers. Whether it be in our families, but also out into 
our neighbors, our co-workers, and especially within the church. The unity of the Spirit is the only way that this relationship that God is calling us to can be possible. Lord willing, next week we'll move on to the latter part of these verses that I started with, verses 5 and 6. And uh, But for today, let me go ahead and close. We're running out of time. Let us understand that with great humility, you and I need to intentionally, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, to walk in amongst these beloved brethren, that being whether it be our wives, our children, our church, our co-workers, and a bond of peace in the unity of the Spirit. Let me close.